Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners of Nighttime. In tonight's episode, I'm going to provide a surprising update to a past trilogy I did. Early in 2019, I told you the story of Taylor Sampson, the young man said to be murdered in a drug deal gone wrong. In that series, we heard about the investigative discoveries that would cast suspicions on a local medical student named William Sanderson, and the further discoveries that would lead to Sanderson being tried and convicted for the murder of Taylor Sampson. This piece of reporting from Global News will provide you with a reminder of where the story was at the time that that series was released. Convicted killer William Sanderson was officially handed a life sentence Tuesday for murdering fellow Dalhousie student Taylor Sampson. Sampson was last seen alive on video on the night of August 15, 2015, walking with Sanderson into his Halifax apartment. Sampson is never seen leaving and his body has never been recovered. Tuesday, family and friends packed a Nova Scotia Supreme Courtroom to see the sentence handed down and to hear victim impact statements from Sampson's loved ones. All of them touched on how Taylor's death has left a lasting impact. Taylor's autistic younger brother, Connor, told the court he is now scared of losing someone close to him and just wants to be himself again. First-degree murder comes with an automatic sentence of life in prison with no parole eligibility for 25 years. When given the opportunity to address the court, Sanderson declined. He has already filed a notice to appeal the conviction. Even with Sanderson behind bars, many questions linger for Taylor's family and friends, especially where his remains are. Will's family can go see him in prison if they wanted to, and we don't even have any sort of place for Taylor and I think that beyond anything like Linda and Connor deserve that it's absolutely unspeakable I mean people in history would go through battlefields to bring back soldiers and the fact that like Will knows where Taylor is in detail what happened and still won't be able to uh, give us that final peace of mind. So that's where we left off. Taylor's family was heartbroken and still without Taylor's remains, and Sanderson was convicted of his murder and handed a life sentence. But what we know now is that this story is far from over. In that news piece and in our prior trilogy of episodes, we heard that William Sanderson planned to appeal his conviction. Well, he did appeal it, and that's what we're going to be discussing. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we'll again be joined by Kayla Hounsel, the author of the book about this case, First Degree. And our topic is the latest developments in the murder of Taylor Sampson. Kayla, I'm thinking uh, over the last few days, a lot of comments and requests for you know copies of your books. How has your week been since, you know, this announcement? <laughs> there's been a renewed interest for sure, I would mm-hmm. say. I mean, I've been pretty fortunate that there's been a sustained interest over the past couple of years since my book First Degree was released in this case, I would say. Um, but definitely a renewed interest. And I think that's because, you know, maybe people who were thinking about reading it or had 
been planning to read it, but just didn't have a chance to get to it yet, now realize that it's even more complex than they thought. And so people are trying to understand it. Uh, it's still widely available on Amazon, Chapters, Indigo, all of the places you would buy books, really. It's not quite as easy to get in bookstores as it was a couple of years ago. It is still available in uh, bookstores across Canada, but I've noticed that most of them only have one copy or two, so would just suggest to ask for it if you can't find it, or maybe even the bookstore would order it in if that's how you choose to buy your books. And if you'll just indulge me for a moment, um, we all know that our local bookstores, small businesses have been particularly hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. So if you are local in Halifax, I've been encouraging people to go to some of those places. I know that uh, the bookmark on Spring Garden Road has some copies. The Dartmouth Book Exchange has some used copies. And Open Book Coffee, which is this great little coffee shop attached to my publisher, Nimbus Publishing on Strawberry Hill Street, they have lots of copies and they actually have some signed copies, which is always nice if you're looking for a gift. Good. Well, great advice. And I also saw you giving some signed copies away on, like, I think on Twitter or something from your account. But I guess that's not a regular thing. That is not a regular thing. In <laughs> fact, that was me before this decision, sort of moving on and clearing out my personal inventory. I just had seven copies left over that I wanted to get out of the house. Um, and so that's why I did that. And okay. then obviously I'm not moving on, yeah. <laughs> but I did sell those books. So I don't have any left to, to do that anymore. Yes. Well, so before we get into it, remind the listeners uh, who you are. Maybe just tell us a bit about Kayla Hansel. Sure. I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist coming up on 14 years now. I'm currently the CBC's national reporter for the Maritime Provinces, which means that when we're not in a pandemic, I travel throughout the region covering New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. I report on radio, on television, and online. And so I'm most often found on national news programs like World Report, The World at Six, and the national on CBC television. Um, so let's get to, to the topic at hand. So people who listen to my show maybe they don't watch CBC, so they know you as your prior appearance on the show where we did a, a two-part series talking about the murder of Taylor Sampson and, you know, the book you wrote about the case. Like, th throughout those episodes, you told you told us a lot of the unexpected twists and turns in the investigation and the trial, but there's been something really big and, at least to me, unexpected just recently. So let's let's start with that. So with, um, after his, his conviction... William Sanderson didn't really give up his, I guess, his legal fight. He had a, an appeal that was going through the courts that there was just recently a decision on. So maybe tell us a bit about after William Sanderson was convicted, what were what was his main argument for his appeal and what, what grounds did he have for this appeal? So if you could just kind of set up, you know, what what the debate was going into this. So William Sanderson's defense team presented various grounds for appeal, but there is one point that really has become the focus and was the focus for the appeal court when they recently overturned his conviction. Um, they said that they really just needed to focus on this one issue in order to determine whether there should be a new trial. In fact, in that it might be unwise to discuss the other issues that Sanderson's defense team had been presenting because they might well become issues during the new trial. So this all has to do with a private investigator that William Sanderson's defense team hired. Some people might remember back in August of 2015 when this happened, there were two witnesses. They were William Sanderson's friends. They were across the hall from him on the night of August 15th when Taylor Sampson was last seen. 
And they're shown on surveillance video peering into William Sanderson's apartment that night. So the police thought that they might have seen something and interviewed them at that time, but they said that they saw nothing at all. And they maintained that story for a long time, more than a year, it was 14 months. And at that time, their names showed up on Crown Witness List. So the defense by now had hired a private investigation firm to help them build their case, which is very common in a situation like this. And this private investigator was told to go and find these guys and lean on them, see what they might say under pressure on the stand. And he did. And by now they were ready to talk. They had been living in fear. That's why they didn't share their stories the first time around when police tried to talk to them. And they had dramatically changed their stories. And they told this private investigator named Bruce Webb that when they looked into William Sanderson's apartment that night, they saw a man slumped over on a chair at a kitchen table in Sanderson's apartment. They didn't know Taylor Sampson, so they couldn't identify him as such. But they said there was a man who had been bleeding from his head. There was blood, money and drugs all over the place. And William Sanderson was running around in a panic. Now, this led Bruce Webb, this private investigator, to form the opinion in his own mind that William Sanderson was probably guilty. Now, remember, he's on Sanderson's team. He's supposed to be working for him. But he worried that the police weren't doing enough to investigate this case. He knew some police officers. So he not only encouraged these two to go to the police with their new stories, but in one case went so far as to facilitate a new interview with police both young men went on to speak with the police again, now having dramatically changed their stories, and they went on to become the trial's star witnesses. This, of course, was a big problem for the defense because they're just learning how all this information came to be in the midst of the trial when these two have already begun testifying in front of the jury. So they decide that they want to ask for a mistrial. They want to start all over. They say there's no way they can proceed with William Sanderson having a fair trial under these circumstances, which were, were shocking and chaotic. And in the words of one of the defense lawyers, threw the whole trial out of whack. But at that time, the defense, uh, the trial judge decided that that was um, not the appropriate remedy. And he declined to have a mistrial. Wow. So the, the trial proceeded on. He was ultimately convicted. And I'm sure it was no surprise when his, his appeal was presented and Sanderson was going to pursue this. I'm sure you were kind of involved in a lot of conversations with people as the appeal was being presented. Like, did the average person seem to think he had much of a chance of winning this appeal? Like, it came as a surprise to me. I think it was a surprise to a lot of people. And I think you kind of honed in on when you say the average person. So perhaps the average person may not be as familiar with the points of law or maybe just not paying as close attention to the people who were really involved uh, with the case closely. I know that the people who sat in that hearing in the courtroom for two days uh, were probably not as surprised as the average person. I unfortunately wasn't able to be there. I had planned to be there. And then I got uh, stuck in Newfoundland in a state of emergency covering uh, what became known as Snowmageddon. So everything <laughs> was grounded and I wasn't able to get back to Halifax. So that was pretty uh, unfortunate and disappointing for me. But as you say, I did speak with a, a lot of people who were in that courtroom, and it was very evident that the appeal court judges, there are three of them, had concerns about this particular point in the law. So it was not surprising to me. Considering all the options that, that the appeal judges would have had, tell me about their decision and 
maybe what factors led to their decision if that's because I, I assume you've read the decision yourself. I have read the decision. It's a 40-page decision. And basically, um, the appeal court judges felt that the trial court judge made a mistake when he didn't grant that mistrial that the defense lawyers were asking for, again, all surrounding this issue with the private investigator. At the time, the trial court said that this was an infringement on William Sanderson's right to a fair trial, but that it wasn't significant because it didn't have to do with the material evidence in the case. So remember, this is not about the witnesses themselves, the evidence that they presented, their testimony. It has nothing to do with that. It's about how their their evidence and their testimony came to be and involving that private investigator switching sides and helping the police. So the trial judge felt that that was unfortunate for the defense, but that the appropriate remedy would be to take a break in the trial, give the defense time to deal with that, and the opportunity to recall the witnesses if they chose. They, they felt that that was not appropriate, and they didn't do that because they worried that it would signal to the jury somehow that there was a problem that something had gone wrong that could be misinterpreted that they would not have the um, ability to explain and they worried that could cause further problems. But the appeal court judges say that the trial court judge kind of missed the point in the law a little bit there. And it isn't just about the evidence, but it's about William Sanderson's ability to make full answer and defense, to fully defend himself against the allegations before him, and that he couldn't do that if he didn't have all of the information, which he didn't. It's it's funny where there's been a series of big trials in Nova Scotia right around the same time. And then they've all just kind of back to back gone through appeals. There was um, Lindsay Suvonaroth had lost her appeal. Nicholas Butcher had lost his. And then Sanderson, I guess, was fortunate to receive it. So we're going back to trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a number of cases that happened in pretty rapid succession. And now they're, yeah, you're right. They're coming up for appeal around the same time. And now with with this particular issue with the private investigator kind of changing teams almost maybe, like how will that affect a retrial? Like I'm assuming this will just be a brand new debate before the new judge as to whether they can allow this new information. Like what will be different? Yeah, I mean, it's I think a lot of I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question because the lawyers haven't been even assigned to this uh, new trial. Mm. I think a lot of legal minds will be furiously trying to determine over the next few months how this new trial will be different. What I can tell you is that during the first trial, when the defense lawyers asked for the mistrial, the judge kind of said, well, if I do allow that, what then? What will we do with this evidence you're complaining about? And they said that they would ask to have it excluded from evidence. Um, So the judge said, you know, can you point me to another case in Canadian history where witnesses were not allowed to testify based on protecting someone's charter rights? And they said no. So it would be very unusual. But that's part of the problem here. And the, the defense lawyers pointed that out as well. Everything is unusual about this. And there are really no precedents in Canadian legal history to help guide these decisions as they move forward. So uh, could it be different? Maybe they'll try to exclude other evidence that was debated 
in pretrial negotiations before the first trial that maybe we don't even know about. There's just so much that remains to be seen uh, in this case as we move forward. Wow. Now, you were in in the courtroom for the majority of, of the first trial, if if not all of it. The information that the private investigator managed to get out of these two guys who lived down the hall, if you remove that from kind of the narrative that was presented, do you think that will change kind of the, the ability to prosecute this case? Well, I'm not a lawyer, but I think it's fair to say that most lawyers would say that they want to amass the largest body of evidence possible when they are either prosecuting or defending a case. So would it be more difficult to either defend or prosecute the case when you remove a significant part of the evidence, I think that's fair to say, yeah, it probably will. You know, the same kind of conversations were had during the first trial when it was considered that there was no body found in this case. And that's still the case. Taylor Sampson's body has never been found. Um, And people were asking, is it possible to get a conviction without that significant piece of evidence? And at that time, all the lawyers said, Mm -hmm. you know, yes, it is possible. Is it more difficult? Of course. And so I think the courts will be facing uh, similar um, circumstances there if this evidence is in fact removed in the end. What I would also say, though, is that this was not the only evidence. It perhaps was the most sensational and the most headline grabbing, um, but there is a significant body of evidence. You know, uh, William Sanderson is seen on surveillance video with Taylor Sampson the, the night that he disappeared, entering William Sanderson's apartment. Uh, Taylor Sampson's DNA was found on William Sanderson's car uh, all over his apartment, as well as on a number of items found on Sanderson's family farm in the Truro area. So the court will be considering all of that as well. Hmm, interesting. Um, now, th- throughout writing your book, you became close with, with Taylor's family. I've seen you photographed with his mom, and I know you know Connor, who appeared on the show as well. During all your time with, with them, was was there much discussion about the prospects of his appeal? Like, was that something that even came to light in your meetings with them? Like, I, when I heard this news, my first thought went to the idea of them having to go mm. through a new trial. And I'm just wondering if if that was something that maybe they expected that you've talked about before, or was that something that ever came up? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people's minds went immediately to them when this news came out, as it should, because this has been a long road for them, and now it's about to get longer. I think, you know, it came up fleetingly over the years in my discussions with them. I've been interviewing Linda Bootlier, Taylor's mother, for five years now, off and on. Um, I think it was always something that they were concerned about and knew was a possibility, but I don't know if they really ever thought they would have to deal with it. I think they were reasonably confident that they wouldn't have to deal with it. I have spoken with Linda a couple of times since this decision was released. You know, she's just sick to her stomach, right, to have to go through this again. She wants justice for her son and her main priority, as it has always been, it has not changed since the first time that I interviewed her, coming up on five years now, she wants to know where her son is. She wants to know exactly what happened to him. She wants to know where his body is. That has not changed. That is still her priority. And she still has no more information than she did five years ago. Wow. Earlier, I, I kind of mentioned the fact of the you know the average person kind of uh, maybe being confused about some of the process of law that would lead to this appeal. 
everything that I saw online seemed to be ranging from anger to disgust, I guess, that this new appeal was or that this new trial was granted. Um, playing devil's advocate, I understand, you know, the legal process and why why this would happen. But I'm just wondering kind of yourself so close to the story, what sort of reactions were you receiving from members of the public or even other journalists you've been talking about? Like what what is kind of the, the mood amongst your kind of circle? Well, I think journalists are probably not surprised, um, nor do they offer opinions on whether something is right or wrong. I do see a lot of anger in the general public, and I've seen a lot of that online. And some of that is an emotional response, and that's totally justified. Um, Some of it, I think, comes from a lack of understanding of the law. Um, So I would encourage people to read the decision. The fact of the the matter is that all Canadians have a right to a fair trial. Um, And I'm not going to offer an opinion on whether this decision is right or wrong either. But I would say that people should consider that it is someone's job to be looking into whether this is right or wrong. And that is also part of the legal process. And right now, the Crowns uh, who argue the appeal are looking into to whether they can appeal the appeal. And that is part of the process. And this might well go to the Supreme Court of Canada. So they have 60 days right now to examine that. And it's not enough for them to just say, we don't like this decision. We don't agree with it. It's not what we argue. They have to find that there was an error in the law, the same as the appeal court had to find with the original trial. And beyond that, in order to go to the Supreme Court of Canada, there has to be a point of national interest. So a point of a point in the law that could impact the whole country, perhaps a point that is unsettled in the law that could inform the law for the entirety of Canada moving forward. And if they can satisfy those two points, then they might have a chance to take this to the Supreme Court of Canada. So I would just say to the people who are angry to know that people are examining this and this is all part of the process and it may well change, it may not, but it is important to consider that every Canadian citizen has a right to a fair trial. And I suppose at this point, we're too far removed to even estimate what a time frame would be for this new trial. There's going to be a lot that'll happen before. Are we? Do you think we're talking years before this gets back in the courtroom, if it does? Possibly. I mean, there's so much to consider here. William Sanderson made his first court appearance since this decision was released this week. He doesn't even have a lawyer yet. It won't be the same lawyers defending him. Uh, He said in that appearance that he had a meeting that day with a lawyer. Um, So we'll see how that worked out. His next court appearance is July 9th. But nothing can happen until he has a lawyer. And so much has to happen after that before there are any dates set. Um, Right now, the pandemic is also a factor because jury trials have been suspended in Nova Scotia. Um, And most murder trials in this country are heard before a jury which could become another problem. I mean, it's very possible that his new defense lawyers will argue that they cannot get an impartial jury, certainly uh, if it is to be held again here in Halifax, because this case is so high profile. It will be difficult to find jurors who don't know about the case or perhaps um, haven't already formed an opinion on the case. So they may well argue that they want this case, this trial, the second time to be heard by a judge alone. But the Crown and the Attorney General has to agree to that. So there's so much to happen. Uh, I think that this will be quite a 
quite some time yet that we'll be talking about this. Wow. So I, I guess a lot of the listeners of the show will be looking towards you and your colleagues at CBC for keeping us up to date on that. Um, I, I have to ask, because I'm sure you're getting this like crazy. Do you plan to, you know, add in new chapters to your book or do a new book? Like, what, what are your thoughts about covering this going forward? I am getting that a lot. That seems to be the million dollar question. I bet. I mean, I don't have an answer for you. I would just say that I am monitoring it very, very closely. Even if you don't see me writing about it and and talking about it publicly, I am following every step of this case. Um, It's a a significant commitment to write a book or to write a part of a book. Um, So I need to consider that as well. And I also want to make sure that there is a significant enough development and change for readers. If they are going to buy the book again, I want it to be worthwhile for them. I also feel a tremendous responsibility, though, to have an updated, accurate record of what has happened in this case. And I take that very seriously as well. I want to thank you for joining Kayla and I for our discussion. I've heard from many nighttime listeners that have been moved by this story, and especially so by Taylor's younger brother Connor's appearance in the third episode of the series. When I first heard the news of a retrial, my mind immediately went to Connor and his mother. It just seems so cruel that these two incredible people will again need to endure a murder trial. And with that, we'll end this episode of Nighttime. But before we part, I want to end with some thanks. First, a huge thank you to Kayla Hounsel for again sharing her knowledge of this case with us. Next, in wrapping up this episode, I want to give a big thank you to Vox Somnia, who provided the theme for this series. And lastly, but most importantly, a huge thank you to all the listeners of Nighttime. Without you, this show would have seen the light of day many moons ago. If you listening want to help keep the lights out here at Nighttime, let me suggest the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can access a separate feed in which the episodes are posted a bit earlier than here in the free feed and are done so without paid advertising. But beyond the regular episodes, the premium feed also includes the Nightcap After Show episodes, which I and a guest climb a bit deeper down the rabbit holes. You can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest members of the group. Lindsay the Rocker, and Power Kelsey. Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you're using. If you want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, you can contact me by using the links on nighttimepodcast.com. Now, until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and stay safe. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. While you wait for the next episode of Nighttime, let me recommend a podcast to check out. Our past guest, Steve Vernon, told me about a show that he and Miss Vernon had been enjoying called Southern Fried True Crime. I gave it a listen, and I see why they dig it so much.
How do you take your true crime? Do you like to sit back and sip on a cold drink while someone tells you a story in a soothing voice? There's no better way to explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. My podcast, Southern Fried True Crime, is like sitting on a front porch listening to a friend tell you a story with a slow pull of a slide guitar drawing you in closer. I'm Erica Kelly, and every Friday, I spin a new Southern tale, giving you the history of the town, the background of the community and victims, as well as the details of a uniquely Southern crime. Explore historic cases with me, like the saga of Cullen and Priscilla Davis in Fort Worth, Texas. It's the perfect example of money and power trumping justice in the South. Or contemporary cases like the death of Andrew Lewis, a young man shot in the back of the head. The shooter claimed self-defense, and Montgomery, Alabama officials refused to charge him or conduct a proper investigation. I am also passionate about wrongful convictions, domestic violence, and rape culture. Southern Fried True Crime pulls no punches, breaking down the good old boy system. I shoot straight about how racism, elitism, and political connections affect justice in the South. Southern charm is attempted, but I can promise you some Southern sass. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and many other podcast apps. Just search for Southern Fried True Crime. Until then, y'all take care.